welcome to the Super High Yield Anesthesia Podcast, where we will discuss high yield concepts for students on their anesthesia rotation. I am your host, Scott, the fourth year medical student. Thanks for tuning in to episode 19 of the Super High Yield Anesthesia Podcast. And today we're going to talk about cardiac physiology as it pertains to anesthesia. So, to give you an overview of today's episode, we're first going to talk about blood pressure, specifically uh, hypotension and the physiological concepts uh, used to manage the hypotension. Then we're going to talk about the nervous system effects on the heart. And lastly, we're going to talk about coronary blood flow. And before we move on to the rest of the episode, I do have a few announcements. So first of all, I apologize for posting this a little bit late. Um, I've actually been working on my residency applications and I've actually started my rotations again. So sorry about that. I'm going to try to get these episodes to you at least on a bi-weekly basis. So you have a little bit of consistency and you know when to expect uh, when I'm going to release an episode. Um, and generally speaking, I'm going to try to release it every other Sunday. And I'm also going to admit that I've kind of been procrastinating on a little bit of everything by cooking a lot more recently. For example, like last night, I made some pizza and a microwave souffle. So that was really awesome. If you haven't made a microwave souffle before, it's super easy. You get it done in less than five minutes and you have like a nice cake in a cup. So if you have the time and you have a sweet tooth like me, go ahead and look up the recipe and I'm pretty sure you will not be disappointed. And moving on from that, I just want to give you an idea of my plans for future episodes. So after today's episode on cardiac physiology, I'm going to do one on pulmonary physiology, then going to give you an introduction to mechanical ventilation. Then the next episode would be high-yield anesthesia considerations for common illnesses, uh, specifically for illnesses in the, the United States. Then we're going to do an episode on OB anesthesia and PEDS anesthesia. So that's going to be the next six to eight episodes from this one. And I'm also going to, or I have plans to create like a Facebook page uh, for this podcast. So it would be an easier way for you guys to interact with me, to offer suggestions on improving the podcast, or if you have any like requests for future episodes, I would love to hear from you guys as we learn anesthesia together. And lastly, I just want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. Uh, It really means a lot to me that you're spending your time listening to the content that I produce. And I'm actually surprised by looking at the Spotify data that I'm getting some listeners from all over the world. So like India, Germany, Switzerland. So it was pretty cool to see that. And I thank you all for tuning in. And I really do hope that this podcast is beneficial to you. And with that, let's get started on this episode. 
So the first concept we're going to talk about today is blood pressure. Specifically, we're going to focus our attention on hypotension. Because if you've ever been in on a case, this is probably the most common thing that you would encounter. And knowing the physiological concepts that cause hypotension would help you manage the condition. And it's super important to to treat hypotension during surgery because if the patient undergoes uh, prolonged uh, low blood pressure, it's going to cause shock, basically. It's going to cause decreased organ perfusion and less ability to get oxygen to the tissues. So if you're a person that likes numbers, the blood pressure values that are associated with increased post-op morbidity and mortality include a systolic blood pressure that's less than 70 and a diastolic pressure that's less than 50. Okay, and speaking of physiology concepts for hypotension, we're going to go through the different components uh, one by one. So we're going to talk about the mean arterial pressure, or MAP. We're going to talk about the systemic vascular resistance, cardiac output, cardiac index, the effects of heart rate, and we're also going to talk about things like stroke volume, ejection fraction, preload, and the effects of decreased contractility. So first up is the mean arterial pressure, or MAP. So the equation for MAP is MAP equals the systemic vascular resistance times the cardiac output. So the systemic vascular resistance, as the name suggests, is the amount of resistance that the heart has to pump against. So an increased systemic vascular resistance is usually due to things like uh, vasoconstriction. So if you clamp down the vessels, it's going to be harder to push blood through it. So that's going to increase the SVR. So since we're talking about hypotension, let's kind of go over quickly the different causes of decreased SVR. So anesthetics could decrease the SVR because if you recall uh, medications like propofol or any other induction medications, it's going to blunt the, the nervous system. So going to stop the sympathetic nervous system from causing the vasoconstriction. Right, so that's why when you administer propofol, you notice like a drop in blood pressure because it ends up dilating the the vessels. You're going to have less resistance, right? And a decreased SVR also occurs with different pathological conditions. So some of which include sepsis, anaphylaxis, and spinal shock. And it's also important to note that the SVR is primarily influenced by arterial contraction. And for those of you that are number and equation orientated, the SVR is equal to 80 times the difference between the MAP and the central venous pressure divided by the cardiac output. And generally speaking, you're going to use a pulmonary artery catheter to calculate the SVR 
especially since you're going to need the central venous pressure or the uh, CVP. All right, and the next component of the map is the cardiac output. So the cardiac output is defined as the amount of blood that's pumped in one minute. So the calculation for that is cardiac output is equal to heart rate times stroke volume. And generally speaking, the cardiac output is measured via thermal dilution in the PA catheter and by uh, transesophageal echocardiography, or TEE. And this is sort of a side note, but uh, another important concept is cardiac index. And the cardiac index is the cardiac output divided by the body surface area. And the cardiac index is arguably more important than cardiac output when monitoring a patient because as you know, like every patient has different body sizes and it changes what is considered to be normal. That is, a, it, it changes what a normal cardiac output is. So by measuring the cardiac index, you're able to have a better idea of how the cardiac function is with that patient's body type. And the normal ranges for the cardiac index is 2.5 to 4 liters per minute per meter square. So I hope that made sense to you guys. So that was an overview of the mean arterial pressure or MAP. And that is defined as uh, the SVR times cardiac output. So obviously, if any of those components increases, it will increase the MAP. So if you have a vasoconstriction that uh, increases the SVR, that's going to increase the MAP. And on the flip side, if you in administer anesthetics, that's going to decrease the SVR and therefore decreasing the MAP. And the same relationship for cardiac output. So the more the heart pumps out, the, in, the more the MAP increases and vice versa. Okay, so next is heart rate. So it's interesting because both tachycardia and bradycardia could cause hypotension. And we'll talk about each of those one by one. So for bradycardia, the heart is pumping very slow. The benefit of that is it increases the diastolic filling time. However, if it's too slow, it could cause a low cardiac output, which in turn would decrease the, the mean arterial pressure as we previously discussed. And on the flip side, if you have a patient with tachycardia, you have insufficient time for the left ventricle to fill properly because the heart is just trying to pump as much as quickly as possible. So because the ventricle is not able to fill, that would cause a low cardiac output because you'll have a lower preload, right? And as we discussed previously, a low cardiac output would decrease the MAP and cause hypotension. And as we discussed previously in our monitors episode, uh, you can monitor or you can monitor heart rate with things like the ECG, post oximetry, 
and simply a physical exam. So you, you can feel for the carotid artery or the radial artery, since those are the ones that are available to you at the head of the table. So one note about the ECG in particular is you're going to try to look for a P wave because if you're missing a P wave, it means that you lost sinus rhythm and you're, you're likely to also lose the atrial contraction and all of that causes a decreased ventricular filling. So as you recall, atrial contraction, specifically the atrial kick that follows the P wave contributes a pretty large portion of the patient's preload, especially if the ventricle is non-compliant. So if you lose atrial contraction, you're going to decrease the preload, and that's going to also decrease the cardiac output. And a decreased cardiac output would decrease the blood pressure. So lots of things to put together, but hopefully it's connecting the pieces for you and it gives you an idea of how these components affects the blood pressure. Okay, next up is stroke volume. And the definition of this is the amount of blood that leaves the ventricle in one contraction. So the equation for that is stroke volume is equal to end diastolic volume minus the end systolic volume. And it's important to note that a normal stroke volume is different for various body types. And if you recall the equation for cardiac output, it's the heart rate times the stroke volume, right? So if you have a low stroke volume, that's going to decrease the cardiac output and ultimately decrease the blood pressure. And you can use this framework to diagnose problems with cardiac output by figuring out if it's like a preload issue or an afterload issue. And we're going to talk about the preload in just a few minutes. Next is ejection fraction. And a definition for this is the percentage or fraction of the ventricular blood volume that leaves the heart into circulation in one contraction. So the equation for that is ejection fraction is equals to stroke volume divided by the end diastolic volume. So the normal ejection fraction is considered to be 60 to 70%. And this is probably one of the high yield uh, clinical factors to know about because it would determine whether or not it's safe to undergo surgery. So if the patient, for example, has a ejection fraction of 30% or something, they are at high risk of morbidity and mortality if they go undergo the surgery. So if a patient has this in their chart or were previously done, it's definitely important to, to note this and report that to your attending in your presentation or anything like that. Okay, so let's talk about the different causes of increased ejection fraction and decreased ejection fraction. So different things that would increase it include hyperdynamic states. So for example, sepsis. So if you recall, when a patient has sepsis, it's a distributive shock, right? So basically you're gonna have 
massive vasodilation due to like a cytokine storm and you're just having a lot of fluid pumping in that particular state then that's why when you feel the um, extremities and whatnot of a patient in sepsis it's generally going to be warm due to the increased blood flow in, in the body and causes of a decreased ejection fraction is going to be a little bit obvious here but poor cardiac function so if it's not pumping correctly if there's an issue with it it's going to decrease the ejection fraction so for example if the patient has a history of uh, congestive heart failure or if they have some sort of restrictive heart disease or even if you have an acute case uh, for example if they had pericardial tamponade or something like that oh sorry cardiac tamponade okay the next concept we're going to talk about is preload so the definition of preload is the amount of blood that fills the ventricle so basically the end diastolic volume and generally you're going to measure the preload with methods like the TE or a PA catheter and for the PA catheter it is important to understand the filling pressure and a very high yield measurement for clinical practice as well as boards is the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure or the PCWP because it's basically the equivalent of the left atrial pressure if you recall from the episode on monitors the PCWP is obtained when you place the, the catheter into a pulmonary capillary and you inflate the balloon and it kind of just floats there so the high yield thing is an increased PCWP means that there's an increased left atrial pressure and when there's increased left atrial pressure it likely means that there's decreased ventricular function because if the ventricle is not pumping well it's going to cause a backflow that increases the pressure of the left atrium so for example if the patient has an MI that affects the left ventricle if it's not pumping not contracting as well as before there's still going to be leftover fluid in the ventricle right so that's going to cause a backup into the left atria and that's going to cause an increase in PCWP moving on and we're going to briefly talk about the physiology concept of the Frank Sterling mechanism and this is if there is an increased filling or there's an increased preload that's going to increase the heart's contractility so for example if a patient uh, has a low blood pressure you can give fluids to increase the patient's blood volume and by doing so you're going to increase the cardiac output and ultimately increase the MAP so that's why you can get fluids to address uh, cases of low blood pressure okay so let's talk about different causes of low preload so the ones we'll talk about is hypovolemia venodilation and obstructions that prevent ventricular filling 
So obvious causes of hypovolemia include hemorrhage and fluid loss. Causes of venodilation include a general anesthesia and regional anesthesia, uh, specifically when you're using neuroaxial anesthesia. And as we talked about previously, these anesthetics cause a blunting of the autonomic nervous system. So ultimately it causes the dilation. And obstructions include things like tension pneumothorax, cardiac tamponade, and pulmonary embolism, which all block blood flow and decreases the amount of venous return. And all of these are physical obstructions that prevent proper ventricular filling. So for example, in tension pneumothorax, collapsed lung pushes the mediastinal structures to one side, and that kind of pinches the vessels and causes a decreased venous return to the heart. So things like that. And lastly, decreased contractility could decrease the cardiac output and ultimately decrease the blood pressure. And common causes of decreased contractility include MI, uh, anesthetic drugs, and cardiomyopathy. Okay, so that was a lot of stuff. But the key take-home point and the most high-yield fact of this is that mean arterial pressure is equal to the SVR times the cardiac output. And any factors that change these things would change the map. Okay, so if things affect the cardiac output, so for example, if the patient has an MI, that would decrease the cardiac output and therefore decrease the map. Or if you give anesthetics and that causes a decrease in SVR, and that would end up decreasing the map. So if you try to think about blood pressure with this system, you should be able to kind of utilize that framework and figure out the cause of hypotension in that particular patient. Okay, this next section is the nervous system effects on the heart. And generally speaking, the nervous system affects the SA and AV nodes. So with sympathetic output, it activates the beta-1 receptors on the heart. And if you recall, beta-1 receptors would increase the heart rate and contractility. And regarding the parasympathetic effects, the stimulation of muscarinic receptors, so for example, the M2 receptors, it actually would slow down the heart rate, but it also has a mild decrease in contractility. And as a quick side note to remind you of pharmacology, you can give atropine, which is an anti-muscarinic, to patients that have bradycardia to decrease the parasympathetic input into the heart and it allows the sympathetic system to kind of increase the heart rate. And in important structures that influence the nervous system effects on the heart are the baroreceptors and the chemoreceptors. So for the baroreceptors, they are primarily located in the carotid sinus and the aortic arch. And these send signals through the vagus nerves and glossopharyngeal nerves. 
And the way it works is that it detects an increase in blood pressure, which increases the amount of signals through the barrel receptors, which are basically stretch receptors. And that increases the parasympathetic stimulation and therefore decreases the heart rate. So an example of this is if a patient presents with like a supraventricular tachycardia, and if you recall, one of the first treatments you can do for that is vagal maneuvers. So either have the patient do a valsalva maneuver or to do a carotid massage. Because when you do a carotid massage, it sends more signals through the barrel receptors which ultimately increases the parasympathetic stimulation, and that in turn will decrease the heart rate. Okay, next is the chemoreceptors, and these are primarily located in the carotid sinus. So the way the chemoreceptors works is it detects arterial hypoxemia, and when it does, it increases the sympathetic stimulation. And important to note is if it's severe hypoxemia, that can actually cause bradycardia. Okay, the last topic is coronary blood flow. And we won't spend too much time on this, but we'll give you a few general notes about it. So the heart, so the first fact is the heart consumes the most oxygen of all the organs. So it makes sense that coronary blood flow is super important uh, in perfusing the the heart so it gets the oxygen it needs to actually function well. And generally speaking, it increases the oxygen supply by causing vasodilation, which in turn increases the blood flow. And the endogenous regulators of coronary blood flow include three things. So adenosine, nitric oxide, and adrenergic stimulation. And as we alluded to a little bit before, the left ventricle perfusion occurs mainly during diastole, whereas the right ventricle is perfused during both diastole and systole. Okay, so that wraps up this episode on cardiac physiology for anesthesia. I hope that wasn't too all over the place for you. But if anything, you can take a look at the show notes and hopefully that makes a little bit more sense. And the fun fact I have for you today has to do with Iowa since that's where I am at right now. So there's actually more pigs than humans in the state of Iowa. So, yep, that's fun. And that's why I like Iowa pork is a very big thing. And uh, before the coronavirus, there was like the Iowa State Fair in Des Moines. And it was awesome because they had like pork chops on a stick. And that was really cool. I loved it. Good stuff. All right. This is Scott, the fourth year Malco student. And I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.